Justin Jackson, welcome to the Indie Hackers Podcast. Hey, Cortland. It's good to be here, man. It's good to have you. You are the founder of Transistor, where you provide podcast hosting and analytics. And I've got to say, you guys are really killing it this year. You launched the public in August of last year, 2018. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. About a year ago, you hit $10,000 a month in revenue in April of this year. Just three months after that, you doubled to $20,000 a month in revenue. That was July. We're recording this, what is it, August? And Mm -hmm. you're already tracking past something like $30,000 a month in revenue, which is amazing. So first of all, congratulations. It's been super fun to watch all this go down. Yeah, yeah, thanks. It's been really (laughs) a ride. I don't know how else to say it, you know? When we launched, I thought it would take us about five years to get to this point. And to have it happen faster has been, you know, really gratifying. This is just you and your co-founder, John, right? Just two people, no employees. That's right. Yeah, just John Buddha and myself. And I believe you're entirely self-funded. So no angel investors, no venture capitalists, just what you're putting into the business. That's right. Although, there w- we can talk about this later. There was a stretch where I was really feeling the cash crunch personally. And I was looking at investment because it was almost overwhelming, you know, but we managed to make it through that. And now we're in a pretty, pretty good spot. Yeah. I'm making it sound like it's all sunshine and rainbows here. (laughs) There's definitely a a tough stretch before you launched where it was looking like a little like deer in the headlights. What's going to happen? What about your expenses? How much does it cost you to run a business like Transistor? Yeah. I mean, we're aiming for gross margins of 80% or higher. We, I mean, one big expense that people wouldn't see on our top line revenue is we have affiliates and some of those affiliates bring us quite a bit of business and we pay 25% ongoing revenue to them. And so, I mean, those affiliate checks haven't gotten too big yet, but two to 3000 a month on affiliates and everything else is pretty standard. I could look it up, but you know, we, we use all the same hosting providers. And one, one thing we always have to keep a, an eye on with podcasting is bandwidth. Right. And this is something I didn't expect. I, I thought that, you know, <laughs> you just pay for the hosting, but I never thought, wait, you actually have to pay for these files to get transferred to millions of podcast yep. listening apps around the world. And a lot of these apps will download the episode regardless, you know, whether it's user-initiated or not. If they're subscribed, they will get the episode. And these files can be 20 megabytes all the way up to 250 megabytes if they're really big. And so I was that was a a big thing we had to figure out is wow, this and one cent or two cents per gigabyte transferred. Sounds so cheap, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) But when I looked into it, I realized, wait a second, this is going to significantly impact our ability to make this a business. And so, yeah, we've had to, we've had to figure out a lot of that stuff out. So we've got a ton of different stuff to talk about, but let's start with Transistor itself. It's podcast hosting. What is that exactly? And why are your customers using it? So just like you need hosting for your website, you also need hosting for your podcast. Every time you click play in Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or Google Podcasts, they are those apps are downloading or streaming that file from a podcast hosting platform somewhere. And so a lot of people think you just submit your podcast to Apple, uh, even Spotify who they re-host the feed, you still need an original feed hosted somewhere. So you need a hosting provider that can generate this RSS feed and also host the files. And then most podcast hosting providers also provide analytics. How many people are downloading? Where are they listening from? What are your most popular episodes? How many downloads on average do you get per episode? And uh, we provide all of that inside of Transistor. And then we also provide the website. So if you don't want to manually update your WordPress site or whatever, you can host the podcast website on Transistor. And every time you publish, 
we automatically update your website as well, which has been really popular, way, way more popular than we'd like sometimes because it also means we're in the CMS business, <laughs> which is a little bit messy. But uh, actually, and all of podcasting is messy. Everything about it is messy. And uh, there's lots of, you know, we provide hosting and analytics, but one of the main things we provide is customer support, helping people to get their podcast published and out into the world and answering all of the questions they have along the way. You're doing something that I love, uh, something I think probably most empty hackers should do, which is you're solving a very straightforward, dare I say, boring problem. Podcasting. Mm-hmm. People need to have their podcast episodes hosted somewhere. People needed to have their podcast episodes hosted somewhere before you came along with Transistor. In fact, mm-hmm. this problem has existed and been solved by numerous companies for decades now. Yeah. Whereas on the flip side of things, Today, we're living in what you might call the golden era of podcasting. There are so mm-hmm. many more shows, so many more listeners, so many more startups, in fact, creating solutions for podcasting, making podcasts more social, connecting listeners to each other and to hosts, providing a bridge mm-hmm. between podcasters and advertisers and things like that. Why did you choose such a straightforward, well-trodden problem like podcast hosting instead of one of these newer, flashier, unsolved problems? Oh my God. I have so much to say about this. First of all, one of the things we noticed before we launched is that the market had momentum. And what this looks like is we could see lots of people signing up for other podcast hosting platforms. Uh, For example, our first customer was Cards Against Humanity. And John was working for them at the time. And so he's in meetings and they're planning a new podcast that they're going to to, uh, fund for a year called the Good News Podcast. And so already there's something interesting about this because here's a company who's spending money for a whole year. They're not just spending money on the hosting. They're paying two people's salaries. They're going to pay for equipment. They're, they're investing, let's say, two hundred to 300000 probably right off the bat on a show. Well, that's interesting because there's momentum there. You can see they're willing to spend money on this thing. And... The more we looked at it, the more, and I'd been podcasting since 2012, and I'd noticed an uptick in people interested in publishing shows. Similarly, like the the whole creator maker movement, I think, lends itself naturally to podcasting, but also the corporate PR communications people were starting to read like all of these New York Times op-eds about podcasting, and they were taking note, and they wanted to start shows. And so you had this movement that we could see. And I think in most cases, you do just want to solve the most boring problem that has the most momentum. Meaning, if I have to spend a bunch of effort, this comes from April Dunford, actually. Uh, She's written a book on positioning. And she says, if you have to spend a bunch of effort trying to communicate what your product is, specifically what category your product is in, you've already lost me because human beings are lazy. When we encounter something new, we immediately want to use something we already know about to put it in a box. And so when I say, hey, we provide podcast hosting, it's kind of like hosting for your website, but it's for your podcast. Instantly, you can put that in a box. And if you're at all familiar with podcasting, you know what a podcast host does. I don't have to communicate anything else. Oh, that's interesting. I might check that out. I might recommend that to somebody. I might uh, use that myself, right? Whereas if you're... So I've been exposed to tons and tons of kind of podcast add-ons. Add-ons can work, especially in a marketplace that has tons of momentum. So the Shopify app store, you've got you know, I don't know, thousands, millions of stores who are already spending money, who want to make their store better. And there's tons of momentum there. You can see it. And so you can go into the the Spotify app store and release a new app. And if it helps people make more money or what have you, then they'll probably use it. But something innovative in podcasting Like if you're creating a new category within the podcasting space, you're going to have to spend so much energy and time 
communicating, explaining, convincing people what that thing is. And if you're bootstrapping, especially, you don't have that much money or time. (laughs) That's just the way it is. Right. And I think I see a lot of folks spitting their wheels on things that seem like a good idea. For example, yes, uh, lots of, sorry, for example, lots of people notice that there's no kind of common platform for people to leave comments on podcasts, for adding membership options, for, there's all these kind of add-ons you can add on, right? And part of this is because podcasting is distributed. It's on, it's built on RSS and there's a bunch of different podcast listening apps and there's a bunch of different podcast hosting providers. And there's a bunch of different directories. And, you know, people look at that and go, well, this is broken, right? This is so complex that we need one unified place where people can comment and discuss their favorite episodes. And, and Mubs uh, just launched something like this called PodHunt. And I think he's actually got a good, he's actually doing something different there that might work. But the reason it often doesn't is because you just don't have the platform. It's distributed. You don't have a good single channel that you can kind of tack onto and get the traction you'd need. And also, you're going to have to spend a lot of time convincing people that they need this in the first place. And uh, the beauty about podcast hosting is we just don't have to spend that time. People are already searching best podcast host in Google. If you're creating something that doesn't exist, that they don't even, they wouldn't even have the idea to search for in the first place, you're already way behind. You're already missing out on one of the best channels for indie makers, which is just people typing stuff into Google, right? So I, I'm happy to be in a boring, competitive niche. The other thing, nice thing about a boring, competitive niche is if you show up and you have any personality at all, or you're doing anything that's fresh, just by being the fresh face, the, the new kid on the block, you're going to get attention already, Right? Because people, oh, hey, there's someone new. Uh, Libsyn, they've been around forever. They're kind of, you know, they're old. Let, let's check out this new thing. And they so, just look old. Yeah, they, it just looks old, right? And some people love using Libsyn. That's fine. But you are automatically going to get new attention because, hey, you're this new player in this old, boring market. And if the market is big, you can carve out just a tiny little bit for yourself and um, make a good indie business. There's a lot of good stuff there that you just said that I could also talk about for a very long time. I really love that you painted this picture of how most people think about building a business, how they look at a market like podcasting and look at things that are broken. And when I hear a description about people think, uh, number one, that's spot on, but I think people are too obsessed with the product. They look at the Mm. product, they look at the way that things are built and say, this could be better. And they're probably right, this could be better. But that's not the only thing that goes into a business. There's also the market to think about. There's also distribution channels to think about. And if you build a better product, but there's no market for it, there's no way to get it out to people, then it doesn't really matter. You don't really have a business. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you said that really resonated with me is the fact that as an indie hacker, as a fledgling founder, you don't have a lot of time. Right? You don't have years and years. You don't have millions in funding to try to convince people that this problem exists and they should take it seriously and then try to sell them your solution. Like Ideally, they should already have done step one and you could just move on to step two. I get so many pitches about how people can make the Indie Hackers podcast more social, etc. I'm like, why do I want that? Why do I care? But Transistor mm-hmm. comes on the scene and immediately I'm like, hey, I want Transistor. I want a newer, better podcast host. I already know how to think about that. There's no sort of mental calculus I have to do in my mind. And even then, even when you're sort of solving this problem for which there's already latent demand, it still takes a while. It wasn't like immediately out of the gate, Transistor was killing it. You guys still had a while where you had mm-hmm. to catch on. So even if you're solving a boring, straightforward problem, you have to take the time to solve it properly and get your first customers. So uh, I think it's really easy to underestimate how long it can take to get started with a SaaS business. Yeah, it's true. But the market will help with that a lot. Yeah. And I, I'm actually really glad that Sahil articulate Sahil from Gumroad articulated this. And I've just I just keep repeating it because it is so true, which is the market you're in will determine most of your growth. 
I think people actually misunderstand what he's saying there. <laughs> what, he, what he means is that the market you're in, the market you choose, the market you're targeting, that's going to determine how fast you grow, what the bounds of growth are going to be, and think about it as a, like a room that you're slowly filling with a balloon or quickly filling with a balloon. If there's lots of space in the room, you could blow that balloon as fast as you want and it'll, it'll go grow really fast. But once it hits the walls and the roof, it'll stop and your growth will slow down, right? So right now in podcasting, it feels like we're in a room with lots of, well, lots of space because we're pumping air as fast as we can and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And we know eventually the market will hit a saturation point and it'll be like, ooh, okay, now we're going to grow slower, slower. And that feeling of being in a market that's growing rapidly, well, first of all, this is the first time I've really felt that. And comparing it to the other things I've done and then thinking about this, it's like, wow, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I never knew what Derek Sivers meant when he was like, <laughs> instead of like trying to create demand, you're just trying to manage all of this demand, right? So instead of you like trying to push this rock uphill or actually instead of you trying to pull the market towards you, like with a rope, like you're just tugging on this thing, come on, get over here. Everything comes easier. All of a sudden you're not pulling at all. The market's just showing up at your door. And I think sometimes folks build a product and then they're like, okay, who's this product for? I'm going to bring it to the market, right? I'm going to bring this product to the market. I think in most cases, the market actually just comes to the product. <laughs> like you, you launch something and if it's something that where there's demand, where there's growth, like Sahil says, where there's a magnetism already there, they will show up at your doorstep. You don't have to go knocking on their door like a traveling salesman going, hey, you got to buy this new thing, right? They're already saying, no, no, no. I'm going to look you up on Google. I'm going to drive my car down to your shop and I'm going to show up where you're at. And I keep trying to articulate this because as someone who's been trying to do business since, well, I'm, my whole life, the feeling between the difference between being a traveling salesman and showing up at people's doors and trying to convince them to buy and having people just show up at my door is, I don't know, it's night and day. And the growth potential of a business, even if you're an indie entrepreneur, you still need growth. In fact, in some ways you need to grow maybe not as fast as a venture-backed company because they're basing it on user growth or whatever. But in terms of revenue, you want to grow as fast as you can, especially in those early days. Because if you don't make enough money soon, you might starve. Your savings might run out. And so these principles are important. We can't afford to make mistakes, especially in terms of who we're targeting. And I think uh, now that I've gone through this process... I'm advocating market first as opposed to product first. And in some ways, I've been saying this for a long time, but it's become <laughs> particularly vivid now. It's, it really is about the market. And if you can find a market that's hungry for something and then just provide the solution that they're hungry for, they will show up to, you know, to eat, if I want to continue the metaphor. <laughs> I love that you're you're so enthusiastic about it. I think it's the kind of enthusiasm that can only really come from having experienced this, this sort of both sides of this equation and seeing how hard one is and then how amazing the other is. I, I think it'll probably be obvious to listeners somewhat from the way that you talk about these things, the way that you've sort of carefully considered things that you have spent a lot of time helping to educate SaaS founders and helping to teach them, especially bootstrappers. Mm -hmm. um, and you've done that primarily through content. I think you first popped onto my radar uh, three or four years ago when I first started Indie Hackers. And I've always mentally kind of put you in a similar bucket to the one that I, I place myself. You've been mm. writing, you've been blogging, you've released courses, you've written books, you've started at least four podcasts, I think. <laughs> Lots, I'm subscribed yeah. to at least one of your one of your newsletters. I want to talk about learning for a second mm -hmm. because when you're in this sort of educator role, you're also doing a lot of learning yourself. And a lot of it is very theoretical. You're not actually mm. building a straightforward, normal SaaS business yourself. Now you're actually at the helm 
of mm-hmm. a SaaS business of your own. Uh, how much does one learn through reading and talking to other people versus how much are you learning by actually being in the driver's seat yourself, learning from experience? I mean, I think those are kind of sim- symbiotic. Is that the right word? Because when you're actually doing the work, so some of my best ideas for blog posts came out of what I was doing as a product manager during the day. Man, this is frustrating. Wow, this is hard. Oh, wow, this worked. Oh, this didn't. And so those insights felt so powerful and vivid when I was experiencing them. And so I'd write about them. But at the same time, you're also getting exposed to other voices that help kind of guide you along the way. I remember the, the first day at my job, uh, first, you know, first day in the software business, 2008, my boss hands me a copy of Getting Real by 37 Signals. And that book just kind of blew my mind open to all of the ways you could run a business and all the ways you could build a product. And lately, John and I have been discussing their new book quite a bit, Shape Up, uh, which I highly recommend. And being exposed to other thinkers, then it kind of informs what you do and what you try, what you experiment with. And I think they're both necessary. So I'm, you know, part of the learning process happens through experience which then sometimes prompts you to do some research, which then sometimes prompts you to get all of these other perspectives and kind of pull it in. I think also, I've always been someone who likes to learn in public. And so when I encounter something that's difficult, for example, (laughs) when I was thrashing about in the early days of Transistor, we haven't launched officially yet. We're at $750 MRR. And I'm starting to feel the money crunch. You know, my wife is asking me, okay, you've been working on this for six months, you know, when are we going to see some money? And I'm just kind of thrashing in public, like, what do I do about this? Do I get investment? Do I hold on? And in that process, I brought in some people that I trust who are at different, had different perspectives. Uh, Primarily in this case, it was DHH and Jason Cohen. And in some ways, I moderated this public discussion uh, that they had about, you know, the different ways to think about funding or not funding your business early on. And uh, that was really helpful to have these folks who are experienced, who had different points of view, give me their thoughts. And I was able to kind of synthesize that and go, okay, that's what they're saying. Now for Justin Jackson, what does that mean? And then make a decision and move on. And I think there's immense value in figuring things out in public and then sharing those things with other folks because it might resonate with them too. One of my favorite talks is by Gail Goodman. She was the CEO, I think, of Constant Contact, an email marketing company. Mm -hmm. And it was called The Long Slow SaaS Ramp of Death. Mm -hmm. Her talk was basically about how long it takes to get to scale and how to sort of navigate that slow growth period. You're talking about the first six, 12 months of Transistor being kind of a slog where, you know, right now you guys are crushing it with the revenue growth, but early on it was pretty slow going. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why was it so slow? And walk us through these early days and what you were thinking at the time. I mean, the original calculation I did that prompted all this angst was Barometrics has this forecasting tool, forecast.barometrics.com. And, you know, I had a conversation with my wife. My wife says, hey, how, thing, how are things going? You and John have been working on this thing. You know, you're putting all your energy into it. What's happening? And I go, well, we have, you know, 50 beta customers and we're at about $750 MRR. And she goes, okay, well, how long until it's paying our bills? <laughs> and I <laughs> go, question. well, uh, let me figure that out. And so, you know, I'm thinking we're going to launch August 1st, 2018. What's the best case scenario? Well, maybe best case scenario is that we double MRR. Okay, that'd be $1,500. Okay, well, if we grow at 10% month over month, that's pretty good. And we have 5% churn. That's probably about right for our industry. How long will it take us to get to $20,000? And it was 60 months. 
And just looking at that, I thought, that is such a long time to wait for a paycheck. And I think it would have been fine if John and I, I, I always joke about this, maybe I should stop, but I always joke that John and I are old. Meaning, in our case, it means we're, I'm going to turn 40 next year. So we're both in our late 30s, just hanging on to our 30s by our fingernails. And maybe I say we're old because I kind of feel like often we're the oldest people in the room when it comes to tech, right? Why do, why do you look younger than I do? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Uh, I got all sorts of face filters going on right now. But, the, you know, you can just feel, you know, we've, I've got four kids, uh, we both have mortgages. We've been in this industry for a long time. Uh, sometimes I'll say, you know, I feel like Rocky. <laughs> you know, I feel like Rocky and Rocky Three. Like I've just <laughs> had a bunch of battles. I'm all beat up. Uh, my joints are sore. And, uh, you know, I'm just looking for something to carry me through. And so all of this feeling is kind of weighing on me. And... Yeah, I, I think it was like, well, what's going to happen? And then we launched, and instead of growing 10% month over month, we grew 20 to 30% month over month, which at the beginning, it still feels quite small. Like, okay, well, we had 50. We, when we launched, we did get to 1500 MRR, but then the next month, it was like 1800 or something. And then the next month, it was like 3000. And you're like, okay, well, that still doesn't pay our bills. But all of a sudden, you hit 10. And then that 20 to 30% starts to really pick up. It's like you go, like you said, we went from 10 to 20 pretty fast. And in some ways, Gail Goodman's talk, which is great, didn't apply to us as much because the long, slow SaaS ramp of death is five years, but ours was like a year and a half. And I think this is another reason, and I, I, I want to be careful here because I realized in some ways we're just in a lucky, fortunate situation. But on the other hand, like Jason Cohen says, he's like, bootstrapping is already hard. Why are you making it harder? I think indie makers can make it way easier if they just choose the right market that has momentum already, that has good distribution channels already. And I mean, you definitely have to pick your battles. Like, I think project management software is hard. Uh, that, that market would be difficult, but maybe there's still a chance. But something like WordPress hosting, you know, you've got Jason Cohen there. Uh, something like email marketing, you've got ConvertKit there. Like, there was already a 3,000-pound gorilla in that space. And he, Nathan carved out a space for him and his team. There are certain markets where folks can come in and make a big enough splash that they can attract customers to them without as much effort as trying to build, you know, like when I tweet about this stuff, people reply, go, well, what about the light bulb? What about the automobile? I go, well, <laughs> yes, there are certain inventions that required an enormous amount of capital or an enormous amount of time. I would say <laughs> leave those for other people in most cases. It, it, I mean, you can do that. If you want to sign up for that road, I would say read the Walt Disney biography because that book is just about Walt Disney who believed in this new technology called animation that nobody else believed in. And the slog of his life, like he... He ate shit for 10 years before he got to Snow White. 10 years. And if you read it, it's just like, it's year after year of bad deals and just grinding out these little shorts for theaters that nobody cares and like nothing is working for them. And then they finally get Snow White and that's great. And then they have another trough of sorrow that lasts forever. <laughs> like, if you want to sign up for that, if you want to sign up for, you know, to be the next Elon Musk, that's fine. Go do that. But recognize what you're signing up for. It's it, like if you're uh, a parent and you have kids and you want to have uh, a good lifestyle, don't do that. Instead, build a product for an existing market that has momentum, 
There's already movement. You don't have to create any of that. You can just, uh, it's, it's like being, having your boat plunked into a rushing river where you don't really have to paddle that much. You just have to steer as opposed to being plunked into like a stream where you're really paddling hard, right? Maybe that's too Canadian of a metaphor. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I get it. I like that you mentioned earlier that one of the good things about learning from other people is that, you know, when you're doing things on your own, you're going to have a very limited perspective. You're going to have your own experience and that's it. But when you read a book by 37 Signals, when you listen to a podcast, you get to hear all these other perspectives of different ways to do things. Mm-hmm. And I think for the longest time in the startup landscape, the only perspective we ever really heard was the high growth VC funded startup perspective, which tends to equate startups for better or for worse, with inventions. Mm -hmm. The idea that you need to do something world-changing and it needs to be tremendously huge or you need to just die and then come back next time. And I think one of the things I'm trying to do with the Andy Hackers podcast is show people a different way by showcasing stories like yours where it's okay to not invent something completely new that's not what you need to be going for. We're talking at a high level about being part of a really fast-growing market, about being part of an ecosystem that allows you to not make it harder on yourself as a bootstrapper. Uh, One of the things you've talked about is looking for something that's growing and has momentum. Mm-hmm. We talked about looking for things that um, are sort of, not to say old, but established, where you can come in and be sort of, sort of breathe some fresh life into it and stand out from the older players. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I look for a lot is look at where money is changing hands. So you might say, okay, podcasting is growing as an industry, but like, what are people actually paying for? They're probably not paying for you know sharing podcasts on Twitter. That doesn't seem to be where most money is changing hands. It seems to be advertising. It seems to be hosting, et cetera. So even within a fast-growing sort of market, you can look at kind of narrow in on where the actual value is by seeing where money is exchanging hands. What else would you say people should look for if they're trying to follow your advice and choose a market that's healthy for their business? Yeah, Ugh, you're you're so good at like <laughs> this is so good because this is exactly you, you want. Evidence. Where's the evidence? I love this book by Rob Fitzpatrick, The Mom Test. Love that one. It's a great book. I've been trying to articulate that idea again, and he just kind of put it so clearly. You can't base your business on what you think people might do, or even worse, what they say they might do. You want to see what are they doing right now or what have they done in the past? And so I like to uh, observe or in conversation go, hey, what's the last thing you paid for? Or uh, what, like if you're starting a podcast, for example, you shouldn't ask, would you listen to a podcast like this? I would say, hey, what are the last five podcasts you subscribe to and why? And if they're listening to a lot of podcasts about you know, like if they're listening to Product Hunt Radio, Indie Hackers, Build Your SaaS, Art of Product, it's like, okay, those are the last four podcasts you subscribe to. It's likely you'll subscribe to a new one if it's different enough or it has a unique perspective on that thing. But there's already momentum there. You know from their prior actions that this is something they're likely to continue to do in the future. And so... Yeah, I mean, we could see, for example, Cards Against Humanity is investing a bunch of money in podcasting this year. What are they going to need? They're going to need the staff. That's going to be most of the money. They're going to need equipment, and they're going to need podcast hosting. And, you know, when John is in that meeting, he can hear people go, so where should we host this thing? Should we host it uh, here or over here? And it's visible. They are about to make a decision. <laughs> right? This is they they're about to make a decision and they've probably made this decision in the past with other things, right? And so there's a there's a template there that I think you can start to recognize if you are working a full-time job, get yourself in meetings and just listen to how those decisions are made. If you're in Slack and the boss goes, "Hey, we need um we need something that will help us generate graphics faster." Uh, what do you, what do you folks, what have you folks used? And people will say, oh, I've used Canva. I've used, you know, they'll start to recommend things. That's where product decisions are being made. And it's actually one reason, even though it's super distracting, I like to be a part of multiple Slack groups because all the time people say, hey, what have you used for this? And then you get to see what people recommend and why they're recommending it. 
there's momentum there. You can, you can recognize it, right? Yeah. So I, I think some of those are, are, those are some things I've used to kind of try to uh, quantify, is something going on here, right? Uh, another thing you can do too is, you know, when we were going to launch Transistor, we knew we had Cards Against Humanity. And so before we had really kind of finished the product, I started going around going, hey, John and I are starting a new podcast hosting platform. Cards Against Humanity is our first customer. That's nice social proof there. Would you switch to us if we offered you this? And, you know, I probably asked, I don't know, 20 or 30 people. And I'd say about 10 to 15 said yes. That's a good sign. And so I, I had this, this group of people that said, yeah, when you launch, I'll switch for sure. Some of them were switching for other emotional reasons, like relationships I built up over time. But just the fact that they were willing to do that, you know, like, yeah, I would switch for something that with an updated player, a better embeddable player for better analytics. Yeah, I'll do that. It, it's like a no brainer for them. That was a good sign. <laughs> so I, I, is there any, you think I missed anything there? Is there something that you've seen work that I... I'm not talking. There's about. nothing obvious that I think we're not covering, but I think it's it's uh, a lesson that I hope people take to heart and learn vicariously through our conversation, rather than having to experience trying to to prove their product to uh, somewhat resistant customers over and over again for years before they finally decide the market actually is important. And there is a lot you can do early on to sort of analyze the market and decide whether or not it's a good one before you sort of jump in and mm-hmm. try to force your will on everybody else. Yeah, I mean, a counter example would be project management software which I think is a really hard market. You could prove me wrong, but from my observations, it's difficult. And the reason it's difficult is if you go to someone on a team and listener, I'm going to ask you this question right now through the airwaves. When was the last time your team switched to project management software? And what did that process look like? Now, if you're like most teams, you'll go through a list well, first we tried Jira, and then we tried Basecamp, and that didn't work because uh, Al in engineering didn't like it. And then someone recommended, uh, you, you know, Monday, and so we tried that. And th- there's a list of products that people have tried. And as you're going through this, you're like, oh, wait, there's a few things about this market. Number one, decisions are made by committee. That's a bad sign. You know, if Janet in engineering likes it, but Mark in marketing doesn't like it, and they have to kind of duke it out, all of a sudden it goes from, uh, this is not an easy decision, right? It's made by over a lot of months. People are trying lots of them and are often not satisfied, right? And so that's a bad sign too, because it's going to take something really special for people to switch. So I, I think these are the kinds of things you can kind of, you can observe and take note of before you jump in. And I mean, I've worked in, I've worked for a project management software company and I know from experience how hard it was to get people to switch. And you can, you can get that information just by asking people, when was the last time you switched? When was the last time you switched before that? How hard was that? What process did you go through? How much did you pay? You know, you can ask those questions now based on their past behavior and decide, is that something I want to sign up for? Yeah. The common theme behind everything you're saying is, is what you mentioned earlier, which is look for proof, right? Don't just look at what people are complaining about because that's not proof that they would use your thing. Look what people are actually switching to, what they're actually recommending, mm-hmm. what they've actually tried in the past. You can't argue against that. If someone's tried something, they tried it, they paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone is just complaining that they get too much email or Slack is too distracting, I've started project management companies in the past. That was a bad idea. I've started companies in the past to try to help people with email overload because so many people were complaining about feeling overloaded with email. Mm-hmm. Guess what? No one's paying to alleviate that pain, no matter how many people complain about it. And so it wasn't a good signal. I was sort of talking to customers, but not talking to them in the right way. Yeah. Like, imagine if you ask them, like they come to you and they're complaining. Oh man, I'm so overloaded by email. Oh, so what have you done about that? Well, nothing. I just want to nothing. talk to you about it. <laughs> okay, well, if you haven't been motivated enough to search for a solution, that's a bad sign. If you were motivated enough to search for a solution, but all you wanted were free solutions, well, that's not a good sign either because indie hackers need to make a living off the things they create. 
So these are conversations you can have right now. And you, you really can't delude yourself. You can't just base it on some aspirational dream that you have that this will make a difference because it has to, because I thought of it and because it, it's so clear, this is broken. It, there needs to be something more than that. And that's why I like this idea of, okay, well, what are people actually doing about it? Prove it to me that this is such a big deal in your life that you've already shown some initiative in finding a solution and paying for it. I want to talk about a couple of the inflection points in Transistor's history with how you've grown your company. You already covered one, which is in the very early days, how did you get your first beta users? A lot of that came from you reaching out to people and sort of doing things the hard way. Mm -hmm. But in August of last year, you launched. Mm -hmm. And that's when you sort of flipped the switch to turn on growth. What was that process like? How did your launch go? And how did you go about getting customers in a different way then than you were beforehand? Sure. So I think our first group of customers, like our first hundred, um, maybe about 75% of those came from my audience and network. And then some of them came from John's network in Chicago. Uh, he was plugged into Cards Against Humanity, which was kind of a creative hub, you know, lots of folks in that community. And initially I thought, you know, I've built this great big, audience, that's going to be a primary driver of our growth going forward. And it turns out, no, I, we still get customers from my audience, but it's not the primary driver of growth. It helps for sure, but it's not the primary driver. I'd say, you know, we launched on Product Hunt and that made a big splash, but the real kind of things that, <laughs> that helped were number one, our affiliate program. We had a few folks that signed up that drive a significant amount of business to Transistor. Also, just search, like people searching for podcast hosting and looking for something fresh and new. Uh, what else really helped? Going on podcasts helped as well. So I, I've been surprised by how many folks said, oh yeah, I heard about Transistor on a show that you were on. And it sounded great. And, or they connected to our story. That was another thing. We, we've been chronicling our journey on the Build Your SaaS podcast. And that's actually maybe an... I don't think it will ever be the main driver of your business. Like I think search engine optimization needs to be the first for most businesses. Uh, word of mouth needs to be a pretty big one too. But the emotional connection that people can have with you as founders or as a company, I think shouldn't be overlooked. I would say about 20 to 30% of our growth, if I had to, I mean, I'm just guessing, but 20 to 30%, I would say, is could be attributed to us sharing our journey, to being open, to talking about our struggles, to you know saying this is what worked and this is what didn't. And some of the folks listening to our podcast, where we just every week say, oh man, well, this was hard. They're cheering for us and they work for big companies with big budgets. And so when the boss, when they're in those meetings, where the boss is saying, hey, so what should we use for podcast hosting? They go, oh, you know what? Transistor would be great. And it's because they have an emotional connection with us. So again, I don't think that should be the primary driver, but I think it's often overlooked. But yeah, the, the big ones were search engine optimization, the, uh, the affiliates have really helped. Uh, uh, and that was almost an accident. Uh, my friend Kyle Fox was building this product called Rewardful, and he begged us. He, this shows you actually sometimes how much tenacity you need to have. He had to, he's my friend, and he had to reach out like 10 times before I finally got that code snippet in our website and was working. You know? <laughs> so he reached out, and we wanted an affiliate program, but it got moved forward because he was so tenacious. And then I was on uh, Matt Giovannici's podcast, and a lot of affiliates listened to that show, I guess, and they signed up from that. And so that kind of, you know, I don't, you could call it luck, but it's also just kind of doing the work, getting out there, telling people what you're working on, telling people what's available and making some sort of connection with folks so that they are uh, motivated to sign up. 
it's a lot of different things that seem to be going your direction. I want to talk about those things. I want to talk about perhaps uh, maybe a few things you've tried that didn't work. Mm. Uh, first, let's talk about SEO a little bit. You mentioned that SEO needs to be first. Mm-hmm. I'm increasingly being moved over to this viewpoint for kind of the same reasons why you said market is more important than product. Mm-hmm. Because the market is huge. It's sort of the upper bound for how big you can grow. Well, SEO is also probably the biggest channel online. Like So many billions of people are running billions of searches on Google every day. It's ridiculous. It's like such a driver of traffic. And as Indie Hackers has grown, and I've looked at other similar sites and how they've gotten big, it almost always seems to be they're really good at SEO. Mm-hmm. How have you gotten Transistor onto the the SEO radar in such a crowded market where there's so many other podcast hosts, you have so much more longevity than you. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's what helps in certain markets to start is having some good affiliates. Because, if, for example, if you search best podcast hosts, uh, that first page is either ads or these blogs that review podcast hosting sites. And so by having a relationship with some folks that are affiliates, right, that they want to make money off their blog, that increases the chance that they're going to write about you and link to your site. That helps your overall search ranking, right? It's going to, it's going to lift your boat as well. Uh, the other thing has been to do experiments, and I'm almost hesitant to talk about this one because it's been a good hedge for us, but I will anyway. Private podcast hosting as a keyword uh, was something I recognized um, using tools like Hrefs and and other things. And you know, I started to write content. I started to write content about how to start a private podcast, and that's driven a lot of qualified traffic to us. Now, it's not a ton of traffic, but the people that click end up on our site and end up starting a conversation on our chat widget and and then end up converting into customers. So that was an opportunity I observed just by using some of the tools, also by you know, once you get some initial traction, this is why I think it actually does make sense to launch on Product Hunt and get that splash and get people kind of thinking and knowing about you. Because when they show up on your site, you're going to start to notice trends. And one of the ones we noticed was a lot of folks were asking, hey, can we do a private podcast for, you know, I, I want to do some training with some employees. And so once we recognized that and we launched the initial feature and people responded to it, I said, okay, well, we should double down on this. And then you write the content, you put it out, and then you see what happens. And I'm not sure, private podcast hosting. Yeah, so we're still on the first page for that, uh, for private podcast hosting. And yeah, that was how we kind of fell into that one. Sharing your story helps too. Because if you're sharing an interesting journey in a transparent, vulnerable way, that resonates with folks. And it's more likely that they're going to write about you. They're going to want to interview you on their podcast. They're going to want to share your story. And that in turn turns into links for your show. Yeah. So, I, and I think the benefit of, sure, there's a lot of competition in, you know, for SEO in terms of podcast hosting, but it's not like it's unreachable. Like we can, we can compete in that space. We can write good content. We can, uh, you know, help people to start a podcast, for example. How to start a podcast in 2019? Well, I'm going to write about that and start sharing that. And hopefully that eventually starts to, you know, people start to find it and land on our site. It's cool to hear how harmonious all of this is for your business, your product, your market, your distribution channels. You're not thinking about these separately, but they're all sort of informing what you do in one particular area. So uh, the fact that you're using affiliates is actually helping you with SEO. And the mm-hmm. fact that there's certain SEO keywords that drive a lot of traffic is actually shaping the direction of your product and helping you decide to implement features for a private podcast, for example. It all comes together. It all sort of works together and builds on itself. And so it's not shocking that you're growing so quickly mm-hmm. um, because not only are you in a great market, but you're also making sure that your distribution channels and your, your product development decisions sort of take full advantage of what the market wants. Mm-hmm. This is, by the way, a market decision as well. Like, Certain markets have better distribution. Certain markets have certain distribution channels that work for them. And in the hosting market, we could already see this. So when I talked to Ruben Gamez about, hey, I'm thinking about launching Transistor, what do you think? He goes, hmm, this sounds a lot like the hosting business in the 90s. And he was right. It's a lot like the website hosting business in the 90s. And so 
his instructions to me was, look at what worked for them back then and try to replicate some of that. And that's a good sign. This market has a distribution channel that really works. It's search. Uh, so this is why choosing the market is helpful. Uh, you know, if, if you choose a market that doesn't have any channels, then, you know, you're already going to be grinding a bit. And it's not that many things to think about. Like before you start your company, you've listed like three or four things. You know, it's not like you've got to do eight months of research here. But if you think a little bit about your distribution channels, a little bit about your market and the customer problems and other companies that are solving this problem and how much money they're making, et cetera, that could solve you many years of, of heartache and pain from mm-hmm. starting the wrong business and not being able to get into customers' hands. Yeah, the thing that makes it hard is each of these is a, you have to pass each of these things through an additional filter. And what ends up on the bottom can sometimes feel like, wow, there's nothing really here. You need the right market, right? You need a market with distribution channels. You need a to build a good product for that market, for sure. And then you need founder fit with all of three of those things. Founder product fit, founder market fit, and founder channel fit, we'll say. And that's, I think, where people get frustrated. <laughs> so they're like, I just want to start a business. I'm just going to choose something. And my recommendation would be to just keep looking. Yes, you want check marks on each of those things. But when you finally find something where there's alignment, that, again, like I feel like I'm finally somewhere where there's alignment between all those things. You know, before there was founder product fit, but there wasn't product market fit in the sense that there wasn't a good uh, market for the product. Like all of these things have to all kind of be cohesive. And I'm so glad I waited and I'm, I felt the pressure as this, as this guy that's, you know, almost in his forties and I'm looking at the graph of, you know, who starts startups and it's all people in their twenties and thirties. And there's this big drop off when people get into their forties. I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's just not going to happen for me. But this continual exploration and waiting for the right alignment to happen is way better than investing years and years and years in something where one of those pieces isn't quite right. And when there is alignment, like you said, so much of this just feels fluid for me. It feels like, oh yeah, this is the business I was meant to run. (laughs) You know, this is, it's all just kind of works out. It's not as stressful. I'm not having to pull or push as hard. Every day, I just wake up and it feels natural. It's still hard, but it feels natural. It's like, like, you know, uh, Hussein Bolt was born to run. He still has to train hard, but it feels natural for him. If you look at him run, it's like, yeah, that's natural. And now I feel like I'm in a similar place. Like, okay, I waited and now we found this thing that is a fit. And that process, that journey for me was basically two things, I think. Creating things and putting them out into the world. And number two, building relationships. That's what helped me get to where I'm at now. When you're creating things, you're trying out different stuff. You're seeing what resonates, what doesn't. You're seeing what distribution channels work and what doesn't. And when you're building relationships, you're opening yourself up to new opportunities. And, you know, I met John in 2014 and stayed in touch with him. And now we have built this company together. But if I had never gone to XOXO in this case in Portland, and I'd never opened myself up to meeting new people, I would have never met him. And that relationship has now become this kind of crucial thing, right? If, if he hadn't said, hey, Cards is thinking about starting a podcast, I'm thinking about building this thing, then we would have never arrived here. So sometimes when you're looking for fit, the journey to get there is to build relationships and to keep making stuff, keep putting stuff out into the world. And that in turn sometimes helps you build more relationships and, and move forward. Really, I, I don't know if you can do it any other way. I'm saying that's what's worked for me, but I think that's actually what works for most people. Yeah, there's different levels of luck involved. And I think it's possible to just sort of miss what's going on. But I think if you take the, the more methodical, considered approach, 
which you've taken, which is you sort of aware of the different levers that you can pull and aware of the different mistakes you want to avoid. You can sort of think about it up front. And then I've interviewed quite a few people who just sort of got lucky their first time mm-hmm. out of the gate, didn't really think about things, but still all the stars aligned. And the, the consistent thing is all of those factors have to align. You can't sort of build a car with like, you know, one wheel works. The product wheel is working great, but the market wheel and the distribution wheel are both flat. Like that doesn't work. <laughs> Your car is not going to mm-hmm. go very far. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think you're right. Like it's... you. You really got to do it this way. There's really no alternative. Yeah. And I know it's frustrating for folks. Like, I know there's people listening right now going, oh, I've been looking forever. And they're just so frustrated because they want to find something that works. And I just want to encourage people to keep looking, keep challenging themselves. And I think actually the thing that holds people back is that they end up just choosing something because they want something so badly and it's not a good fit. And then they get stuck in that rut for so long. And that's what ends up holding them back is that they're in an idea that just isn't a good fit. But when you're, when there's alignment in all these things, you know, like when I heard John was going to build this on his own, I begged him to let me be a part of it. Cause I said, I was made for this. I, John, you got to trust me, man. I know if we team up, we will be like Voltron. You know, it will be incredible. <laughs> I just could feel it. Everything was aligned, you know? And it wasn't like one day I was daydreaming and I said, you know what? I should really start a podcast hosting company. It wasn't an idea I just had out of the blue. It was something that came out of a relationship and then years and years of experiences, Right. And then when the opportunity came up, it was like, this is it. This is it. This is what, there's alignment in all of these areas. And we still didn't know when we launched it, if it would work, but all the signs were so good. And then when we did a little beta launch and the signs were still good, and then we did the actual launch and the signs were still good, it just, it feels better. And for the first time in my life, I actually feel, I actually just feel relaxed I feel like I'm not working so, you know, super hard to launch another course or, you know, super hard to try to build software on my own. This just feels right. And you look relaxed. You sound relaxed. (laughs) I've seen videos of you on on YouTube where you were wound up. You were just like so full of energy. And it's like, I can tell like you're, you're passionate about it, but like there's pressure. Yeah. Right now you, you are as relaxed as I've ever seen you. Yeah. And a lot of other people have said that to me too. My dad just said that he was visiting. He's like, man, you seem relaxed. And it was because before I was in this constant cycle of having to launch something new, mostly because I needed the money. And when that is the primary driver, when you are, you know, there's this desperation scale. When you become desperate, this idea has to work but things aren't aligned. You're not thinking clearly. It's not, things aren't quite right that you're just setting yourself up for a grind. And we all know business owners like this. You know, we all know somebody who started a cafe 15 years ago and they did it and, you know, maybe they were passionate about it, but they didn't consider the market and they didn't consider the channels and they didn't consider all of these other things. And now they've been doing it for 15 years and they should have got out of it right away. But instead they stuck to it and they're just ground down. They started a business to give themselves a better life, but they didn't get it. And in some ways I'm lucky that I was able to get out of that because I was in a business that was not going to, where I wasn't in alignment and for sure, they're gonna, a few things don't happen there. And, uh, you know, I'm a miserable person somewhere. And so there's some definite luck there. But I can also see that waiting for the right thing was a good decision. And now I feel fully invested in this, which, by the way, still might not work out. But I also have this piece about that, too, which is, okay, if this all blows up tomorrow... Will I have enjoyed the journey? This is something else Jason Cohen said that just stuck in. He's like, you should be having fun. (laughs) Because, and Steve Jobs said this too, like, make sure you are so passionate about it. 
Because building products is so hard. If you're not enjoying it, it's going, ah, oh, you're not going to survive, right? And so if this all blows up tomorrow, I'm still going to be thankful for it because I enjoyed the journey. From the beginning, it just felt like, man, that was great. That was such a good experience building that product with John, doing the things we did, serving those customers, helping them get their audio out into the world, amplifying these voices. This is just something I can believe in, you know? And yeah, that, that's given me a lot of peace. Well, I'm happy for you, Justin, and I think everyone listening will be too. You've really put in the reps as I listed earlier, you have a long career of countless launches of podcasts and courses and books and communities and blog posts and all sorts of things. And now you're sort of, the reps are paying off and you've gotten to uh, the promised land, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> after such a long career, after all the things that you've learned before working on Transistor and also the things you've learned through experience having worked on Transistor, what would your advice be to a fledgling founder who's just getting started. And I know this whole episode, we've been basically nonstop mm-hmm. giving advice. Mm-hmm. Um, but besides the things we've talked about, what do you think they should know? What do you think, from a zoomed out point of view, they won't see about a startup, but once they get into it, uh, they'll wish they would, they'd known before? Sure. It really depends on your, your age, actually, I think. So if you're a teenager and you're listening to this, you know, I know there's this one uh, kid, he's, a, he's great, Miguel Piedrafita. He is a, a Laravel programmer. And he's building stuff right now. He's building products right now and putting them out into the world. He's building relationships with folks online. If you start that early, if you're putting in the reps early, man, that makes a big difference. And I would say it's similar for folks in their 20s, you know? For folks in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, one thing that helped me, because I, th- I felt like in some ways... I'm washed up. I'm done. <laughs> like it's, I'm Rocky and Rocky three. And I, you know, this is done for me. One thing that helped was this line from James Clear. And he actually, before he'd released his book, he has his book, Atomic Habits. I think everyone should read it. But he was sitting with me in an airport and I was just kind of down, just saying some of the same stuff. Like, you know, it's never going to happen for me. And he said, Justin, you can start right now. Every action you take is a vote for the kind of person you'll become. And so the things that you become good at, the things that you end up cultivating in your life, they're not, they don't come out of nowhere. They don't even come out of like beliefs or, you know, positive thinking. They come out, out of, they come out of what you do repeatedly. So if you get up today and, oh, here's a good example. If you get, I'm teaching myself how to code. If I get up today and I code today and I get up tomorrow and I code tomorrow and I get up the next day and I code then, eventually, if someone asks me, hey, do you code? I would say, yeah, I do code. Now, I might be 45 by that point. You know, I might never be as good as DHH, but will I be better? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) For sure, I'll be better. And so, I think one thing that held me back in my 30s and you know now in my 40s was, oh, it's too late for me. But you can start putting in the reps now. And sure, you might not end up Arnold Schwarzenegger because he started in, in his teens. But if you start putting in the reps now, you'll be significantly stronger than when you started. And so I, I think that's the big thing is you got to put in the reps. If you're in your teens and your 20s, don't wait. Start doing it now. Build relationships. Put stuff out there. But if you're older, it's not, you're not done yet. You've got lots and lots of years left and you can put in those votes for the person you want to become as well. Love that advice. And as annoying as it will sound to people who are older than me, I had the same feeling in my 20s. Like, oh, it's too late for me. <laughs> Should I just go get a job? Am I done with this? And I'm so glad that I kept pushing and kept trying. Justin, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Off to have you on uh, another time in the future when Transistor is pushing 100K a month in revenue, which I'm sure it'll get to. <laughs> can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to, where they can go to become Transistor users? When I can actually sign up for Transistor from the Indie Hackers podcast, which I've been waiting for yes. for so long. Yeah, uh, Transistor.fm, you can sign up there. And uh, you can also, John and I answer the little chat widget. So if you want to just talk to us there, you can. On Twitter, I'm M-I-Justin, the letter M, the letter I, Justin. That's kind of where I ha- I 
test out material, you know, stuff I'm thinking about. So if you want to interact with like whatever's going on in my head, that's a good place. And I blog at justinjackson.ca. All right, Justin, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, man. Listeners, it would really help the show if you took a minute to reach out to Justin and let him know you enjoyed hearing from him. He is at MIJustin on Twitter, and I would really appreciate it if you just showed him some love. I also appreciate hearing from you myself. I am at C.S. Allen on Twitter. That's C-S-A-L-L-E-N. If you learned something useful from the podcast, let me know. Or if you have any suggestions at all, for example, guests I should bring on, topics I could cover, ways I can improve the show, I am all ears. It's pretty hard to get feedback on a podcast, so I love it when you reach out to me on Twitter. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.